It's the British Broadcasting Century Comedy History Special. And it all links to a key date of British broadcasting comedy, 26th of April, 1923. What happened then? Well, before we reach the punchline, the setup. So previously on the British Broadcasting Century... It's late April 1923, and a special Shakespeare's birthday broadcast included scenes from his plays. He didn't even bother to show up, the 359-year-old prima donna. But behind the scenes, the BBC is on its last days at Marconi House. Savoy Hill Studio will open within the week. Wreath is fighting a battle with the government over the licence fee, the quality of programmes, and really an existential question. Should there be a BBC at all? Should there be broadcasting at all? Well, every broadcast matters then, and they're constantly innovating. So this time, it all sounds a bit heavy, doesn't it? So we need cheering up. The 1923 BBC brings comedy to the air, not for the first time, but for one of the most significant gala concerts they staged in the early days. We will meet the stars on the air that night and get a taste of what it was like to listen in at a central London department store. We'll also chat to one or two of today's comedy writers about their own comic inspirations, from Dad's Army to Dinner Ladies, Blackadder to Bottom. We'll hear from James Carey and Simon Dunn, with a little bit, just a little bit, of Geoffrey Holland. And there's a reason that I'm singing that song like that. All will be revealed. Don't tell them, Pike, but it's episode 73, a what I call comedy special. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it. It's a British broadcasting century. <laughs> hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello. Welcome. It's Paul here. Last episode was drama. Well, this episode, it's comedy. And thank you for your kind words on the last episode. If you've not heard it, do seek it out. It's the wonderful tale of Phyllis Twig, the under-recognised first radio dramatist and first TV chef. And trust me, I'm not leaving her tale there. I'm working on the biopic script as we speak. It must happen, surely. Such a fascinating story. Uh, But first, I'm working on my novel. But before the novel, I'm working on this podcast. So lots to do to tell this broadcasting history story a number of ways. Now, this episode will be leaping forward into the late 20th century with James Carey and Simon Dunn and Geoffrey Holland. But as for our very gradual timeline to the earliest moments of broadcasting, we've reached the last days of Marconi House. It's the 26th of April, 1923. That's where we're zooming in on this episode. It's one of the early BBC's finest nights of comedy, as one of the top troops of the day take to the mic. I hate to run the risk of being boring. Mm-hmm. I rather think I've said all this before. The co-optimists. We will meet them soon and hear about their unusual pre-BBC broadcast as well. One of the only public broadcasts in 1921. Odd, because there was a broadcasting ban then. How did they get around it and what was that all about? All will be explained. It's quite a tale and in the process I think we've discovered a new slash old studio that's been unheralded till now and maybe deserves a blue plaque on the wall. Yes, the scene of the first London broadcast. But first we'll start in early 1923. Now it's no mean feat to perform comedy in a radio studio and I should know I've done stand-up on radio for myself. Thankfully the drill hall had an audience at our recording. But before we get to April 1923, here is what comedian Stanley Lupino made of his visit to the Marconi House studio a couple of months before that. He was still in makeup as Buttons in Cinderella and he rushed from the Hippodrome but he glared at Tuolo's meat-safe microphone and this is what he said. 
That's a rum thing. It's like a Ford car with the works out and the wheels off. Beastly unnerving looking arrangement, no. And Stanley Lupino shook his head and scrutinised the microphone for a while at a safe distance across the studio. Then he was told it was time to broadcast. Right you are. Show me where to stand and what to do. Let's get it over. Lupino cleared his throat and the red light illuminated to say he was on the air. Hello, children. Button speaking. I wish you could see the thing I'm talking into. Really awful it is. I'm afraid it'll go off any minute. So if you hear a bang, you'll know what has happened. After some tales of playing buttons and encouraging the kids to come and see Cinderella, he signed off. The red light went out. He was asked if he enjoyed it. Enjoy it? I've never had such a bad time in all my life. I'm a comedian too. I've never felt that I was getting the bird more than I felt it tonight. You really cannot be funny to a lot of metal like this thing in front of me. It simply can't be done. I don't mind trying to be amusing on the stage. You can alter your tactics if you feel and see the audience is getting bored. But to try to be humorous down a microphone? Well, I can't do it anyway. I felt all the time as if some invisible hand was clutching at my throat. Or someone whispered in my ear, You are an idiot. Do you think you are being funny and amusing those children? Because you are not. I'd just as soon try and make a drainpipe laugh as get any sign of expression out of that box of tricks. I nearly chucked it up once or twice, for I felt sure everyone had switched off and that I was being given the most frightful bird. Without seeing the faces of your audience, it's terribly difficult to carry on at all. I've had quite enough for tonight. I'm going home. And with that, Mr Lupino bade us all a hurried farewell and fled from the Chamber of Horrors. So said popular wireless magazine on 31st of March 1923. Well, let's see if the comedians in late April fare any better. I think they will. But to reach April the 26th, 1923, a few little dates to catch us up on of relevant moments. Mid-April 23, you do get an attempt at mirth on the wireless with a little sketch by our old friend Captain Eckersley, performed by the members of the BBC staff. And this is off the back of the press pressure and the government inquiry into the BBC, the suggestion of no licence fee, no charge for listening to the wireless. The BBC defended itself with a bit of satire and a bit of mockery, written for them by their chief engineer and pre-BBC humorist Peter Eckersley. Now here is how the sketch apparently went. A woman prophesied the dawn of a new era when railways would be free and newspapers given away. Just imagine what they'd think of the Metro, let alone the Metro, the Evening Standard. Newspapers have specialised in giving away for several years, the woman announcer said on the radio in this sketch. Lately it has taken the form of free insurance. Soon we may see the newspapers themselves given away. At this point the hoarse voice of a man broke in, representing the editor of the Daily Express, who were very anti-BBC. He shouted, Never! Never! The suggestion of giving away newspapers, and you broke into peals of laughter at the thought of travelling in a railway train for nothing. And then the woman said that she would give a sample of the programmes which would be broadcast even when the BBC was stopped and replaced by commercial broadcasting. The audience then heard excerpts of bad programmes and bad music, including the extremely puerile noises of a weird orchestra. She ended the sketch, warning, That is the sort of thing you will get. Yeah, a weird sketch by the sounds of it, but it gave the listeners a flavour of an underfunded auntie. This was the What Has the BBC Ever Done For Us? John Cleese sketch of its day. A week or so later, it's the 21st of April. Popular Wireless magazine had an article demonstrating the threat to the Beeb if a lot of these bans continued, various personnel being told they couldn't broadcast because of disputes. So this was written by novelist and radio ham and BBC backer William Lecou, who was moaning at theatrical managers and phone companies who were after a greater cut when sending performers to broadcast. They thought of the BBC as a record label and that they should be financially rewarded accordingly. The article said, The gramophone companies are endeavouring to make out that a radio microphone 
is a sound recording device. As a result, they were stopping their artists from performing in front of said mic. I doubt it could be said that a telephone transmitter records sound. Surely it distributes it. Yes, we'll hear shortly about that band in action. A star of the day is exiled from the studio, and he's not happy about it. Two days later, April 23rd, it's the Shakespeare broadcast we heard about at the end of the previous episode. Two days after that, the famous Savoy Havana band take to the airwaves for a second time. Very popular. And of course, the BBC were moving in next door to Savoy Hill at that very point. Broadcasting would commence from there within the week. So the next day after the Savoy Havana band, it's the 26th of April, 1923. A very special day because it's the day of the royal wedding. Yes, the future George VI and Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, a.k.a. the Queen Mother, to many of us of a certain vintage. John Reith was eager to broadcast this wedding, arguing that it would benefit from the devotional point of view. But permission to broadcast the wedding was refused for potential blasphemy, some said. At this point, the BBC had not broadcast a church service and hadn't quite worked out what brand of religion to broadcast, although High Anglican was probably quite likely, I guess. Leaders of the church were quite wary of broadcasting, including the Dean of Westminster. He was responsible for the royal wedding, and he was the one who said no. So, well, how else do you celebrate a royal wedding on the air when you can't broadcast it? Well, on London 2.0 that evening, 7 o'clock, by kind permission of the Dean of Westminster, the choir of Westminster Abbey will repeat the wedding anthem by Mr. Sidney Nicholson as performed on the occasion of the royal marriage. The conductor is Mr. Sidney Nicholson. Yes, so they got in the composer of that day's marital music and the choir who sang it to give an on-air encore. So it felt as if you had been there. Nice. But it's not enough. So, planned weeks in advance, Harrods, the fashionable department store, hatched a plan. Remember that department stores like Selfridges had been promoting broadcasting when so many others were doing it down. Selfridges had even loaned the BBC some of their advertising space earlier in 1923, when the newspapers had stopped printing BBC listings, thinking they were competitors. Remember too that Selfridges and Harrods, well they'd had a shopping war for decades and it was at its height at this point. Years earlier they'd had competitive Christmas light switch-ons who could get the decorations up first. You can read much more about that in my book, Hark the Biography of Christmas, but that's about festive history. Let's get back to broadcasting history. It's a good read anyway, do buy my book. But here too, Harrods wanted to maximise publicity of their shop and get customers through the door. So for the royal wedding, a special programme arranged in conjunction with Messrs Harrods, or as popular wireless magazine called it at the time, the first wireless gala concert. Thursday, April 26th, 1923, will be long remembered, not only as the date of a popular royal wedding, but as a red-letter day in the history of broadcasting. It's down to the enterprise and foresight of Sir Woodman Burbridge. Now, he's the managing director of Harrods. Yes, indeed, a gala concert on the air, but you could listen to it in store. In the Georgian restaurant at Harrods, 10 loudspeakers were installed. Over 2,000 guests installed themselves on seats. There's a beautiful picture of this that Andrew Barker has found and shared on our Facebook group. I will link to it in the show notes so you can see this huge packed room of ladies and gents suited and booted as if they are facing a theatrical stage. But instead, it's a gramophone horn all in this rearranged restaurant there in Harrods. Elsewhere in the shop, they had three loudspeakers in their lecture hall. They had two loudspeakers in their music salons. So a total of 4,000 people attended that day. Radio as a live event was a massive hit. 
So, who was taking the mic back in Marconi House to make this such a must-listen event? Well, after the choir with that wedding anthem, it was Jose Collins at 7.30. She was the first celebrity on the air a few months earlier, back in December 22. So she was back, fresh from her West End stage. If you couldn't get a ticket for her show, you could hear her before the 2LO microphone. On every occasion, I dread it, yet it fascinates me she said at the time. So then listeners, whether at home or at Harrods, would hear the band of the Irish Guards and the Gresham Singers, a male quartet, and then the headline act, the Co-Optimists, one of the leading comedy troops of the day. Marconi House must have been absolutely packed with the singers and the band and the comedians. It was in fact so packed that the Co-Optimists were causing chaos off mic as well as on mic. During the customary pause for furniture shuffling, which was quite normal between acts. Stand by for a few moments, please. While the orchestra gets ready. A piano got stuck in the studio door. The cobbardists were sadly on the wrong side of that piano, so they couldn't reach the microphone. No one could get into the studio or indeed out from it. There was pushing and shoving and clambering over the piano. Somehow a show happened, but potentially the pianist is stuck in the doorway too. The co-optimists were such a hugely popular troupe of essentially clowns, so I kind of wonder if that piano blockage was all part of the fun. Now, see if you recognise their star singer. Clue, age him up 40 years, and I'm sure you have heard this voice before. Come listen all you lovesick maids whose hearts are sad with moping, and I will play a melody to set you all a-hoping. The voice there, of Stanley Holloway. Four decades later, he would play Eliza Doolittle's dad in My Fair Lady. We're getting married in the morning with a little bit of blooming luck and so on. Back in 1923, he is singing with the Co-Optimists, this hugely popular Piero troupe. In other words, comedy and singing, tomfoolery, juggling. I don't quite know how juggling worked on the radio, but if anyone could manage it, they could. The troupe then, you had Melville Gideon on piano, Davy Burnaby, a.k.a. Uncle Davy. Come on, old Davy, whilst they're banging the seats down. He was one of the originators. Do what you like, ladies and gentlemen, during this song. He was lead co-optimist. Swap seats if you don't like the person next door here. He was actually one of the few of the Kiss gang the program, who had girl. listened to the radio before. Kiss Melville Gideon, if you so like. So he approached the microphone off Oh, the by chart. the way, I haven't got a title for a song. They haven't even given me a song this time. But many of his colleagues were rather baffled how to adapt their stage act for this new medium. Betty Chester said it was like singing into a gramophone, but she missed the public. Then there was Madge Titheridge. She found it strange speaking without a visible audience. Laddie Cliff, uh, he found it hard that his own face wasn't seen with the words, but he hoped that hearers could imagine it. Cliff's wife, Phyllis Monkman, I've just discovered with a bit of digging, uh, she was actually romantically involved with George VI previously. Bizarre. Yes, that night the BBC chose to celebrate the first royal wedding since the BBC began by hiring the princely groom's ex to perform on the radio that night. It's a weirdly small world, isn't it? Well, here's another of the troupe, Gilbert Childs, who sang this song that night, Don't Let Them Scrap the British Navy. This so-called government of ours to die is cutting down expenses so they strive to save a few odd millions more or less. They want to scrap our navy, do they? Yes. We know they're broke. Well, you're all broke and I am broke as well as we were when Molling broke first sailed away. We've got the men, we've got the ships, what's more, we've got the water, and it's just as wet as in Lord Nelson's day. 
So that's the sort of thing you'd hear that night, broadcast from Marconi House, listened to in Harrods or perhaps at home on your crystal or valve set. But down the corridor from the studio at Marconi House, down the way from where the piano was probably still stuck in the doorway, you'd find a couple of unhappy performers slumped in chairs. My agents won't let me. I can't broadcast after all, said George Roby sadly. Billy Merson, too, was booked, advertised, and looked forward to by that Harrods audience and those at home, but they'd been told by their agencies not to take part. The agreement, or the disagreement, between some agencies and the Beeb meant that, like the writer's strike today, certain entertainments were denied to the public until the matter could be resolved. So that's why the BBC kept putting on their own shows in-house more than outside broadcasts. If you look at the BBC programme index today, George Roby and Billy Merson are still listed but uh, that needs an edit. They were booked, but sadly they never made it to air, and it was indeed sad for them. But the co-optimists had a ball on the air, and while it was their first time on the BBC, it wasn't their first time broadcasting. I will tell you all about their unusual comedy show that ended up as one of the only things broadcast in 1921. That's coming up in a little while. But first... Some guests. So let's spring forward a few decades with a couple of fine visitors who've joined us here, if they could get past the piano stuck in the studio door. Now I'd like to work forward chronologically, so before we meet James Carey and Simon Dunn, both comedy writers today, let's chat to comedy legend from Heidi High, Geoffrey Holland, a connoisseur of 50s radio comedy. I grew up, you're talking about vintage radio, I grew up in the 50s. Uh, I was born in 46 and I grew up in the early 50s, listening on Sunday mornings to the Billy Cotton Band Show, Educating Archie, The Row Kid. I've got a, actually uh, on cassette, I've got a, uh, many of those actual programmes in my library. Mm. And uh, I've got a, an episode of Up the Pole by Jimmy Jewel and Ben Morris, who you've probably never heard of. Uh, okay. Jewel and Morris were a British uh, double act at the time. And I worked with Ben Morris on the on the, the stage show of Heidi High when we did the summer seasons. He joined us in the cast for that because Jimmy Perry knew him very well. Uh, and he and his cousin, Jimmy Jewell, they did you know, a, a double act, a British comedy double act for years. Mm. They had a radio series called Up the Pole. And I've, got, I've got an episode of it. I think it's the, the last one, I think, in 1949. Oh, wow. And I've got an educating Archie as well with Peter Burford and Archie Andrews. You know, the the, the vent who was on radio. Dreadful. He was lips time, you know. Uh, best place for him was on radio. And and a twelve year old Julie Andrews as the guest singer in it, singing Coloratura Soprano, wonderful voice, you know, she had. That, that that particular era is very close to my heart, you know, in radio comedy, because that's where it all started. Then it, it became television comedy. It moved that genre onto the screen when, when they were equipped and able, you know. All those wonderful vintage comedies, Ted Ray, Raise a Laugh, you know, and listening to people like Dick Emery and Peter Sellers doing all the supporting artist voices. Then they went on to become stars in their own right, you know. So speaking of which, and I wanted to just mention as well, The Goon Show, you did a performance, was it Goon Again, in which you were playing the Peter Sellers parts, is that right? Those voices, yes, I did, which was, which was enormous fun, because I've, I've been a fan all my life anyway, you know. I worked with Dirk Maggs, uh, and a great producer, you know, and great Goon enthusiast, of course. Mm-hmm. He managed to get Spike to agree to uh, allow him to do one, and he, Spike was a bit iffy about it, you know, he said it's not the same as 
flywheel shyster and flywheel about the Marx Brothers, you know, mm. not the same. It's a different kettle of fish altogether. But he said, um, you know, I have a go. He gave his permission, and we got a script together, and we Dirk cast it. And he he got me to do the the sellers things because he knew that I could. Well, he he's been interviewed, and I quote, he said, you know, you can time a laugh with an yeah. audience. Standing there on the stage with you know microphones and script in our hands and reading it like we were doing a, a recording of a, a goon show like they did on stage, and and a seventeen piece orchestra behind us conducted by John Wilson, which he was as known as as he is now then. John Wilson, amazing conductor, you know, and Dirk said, "How many mics are you going to need for this?" You know, he said, "Oh, just four. He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, we're a self balancing." orchestra we listen to each other the brass section don't try and outplay the percussion you know and vice versa they just balance and play and it's wonderful the effect of that well that there's a metaphor for an ensemble sitcom if ever i heard one you know it's it's everyone in balance together and that's what you get with with all of these classic sitcoms doesn't it i think they just get the gang together and let them do what they do best Exactly right. Thank you, Jeffrey Holland. Now, let's meet another couple of guests who've both got books. They're both comedy writers, and they like to dig behind the craft of comedy writing, especially sitcom. Simon Dunn has written for Smack the Pony, BBC's TV To Go, and ITV's The Sketch Show. He's written a book on the sitcom Bottom, wonderfully called Proctology. And we'll hear from James Carey. He's written for BBC's My Hero, My Family, Miranda. Sorry, that's Miranda. And he co-created and co-wrote Bluestone 4-2, BBC's bomb disposal sitcom, as well as radio shows Hut 33, Think the Unthinkable, and several series of Milton Jones shows. His books include The Gospel According to a Sitcom Writer. So working their way through comedy history in a non-definitive guide, let's begin with James Carey. The BBC sitcom... They really have churned out an awful lot of them. So many happy years in my childhood, I grew up watching sitcoms. I'm the youngest of four. So by the time I was sort of eight or nine, my parents had given up trying to stop me watching TV. And I watched all the stuff that my older siblings watched. So I I became a lover of sitcom. And then when I got the chance, I wanted to write them. Apparently, the first British television sitcom was Pinwright's Progress on the BBC from 1946 to 1947. I would not have known that. I would have said The Glums or something. Then Hancock transferred from radio to TV in the 50s. And and in the 60s, the BBC produced the earliest of Richard Waring's domestic comedies, Marriage Lines, with Richard Bryars and Prunella Scales, 1961. I had no idea. Never heard of that show. Yeah, and in a way, I think we associate sitcoms particularly with the 70s and the 80s. But yeah, it does feel like that it is a slightly historic form that's kind of grown into this odd contrivance that just seems to kind of work. And then the Americans kind of took it and ran with it. I mean, in a way, they I think they kind of invented it too. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now a man who is an expert in all of those, I would say, niche areas that you haven't thought about in uh, entertainment history. Simon Dunn. Hello, Simon. I don't know if expert is the right word. I I just have a a fondness for the esoteric, perhaps, or the ephemeral as well. So, for instance, um, I wrote a series of blogs about um, sitcom ovens. Um, (laughs) Because I've been watching a lot of sitcoms, it was locked down, yeah. And I just noticed hobby. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just noticed that there was quite a lot of shared ovens in okay 
in sitcoms, especially across Roy Clark sitcoms for some so, reason. So shared as in the same one crops up in different kitchens? Yes, because it's oh. the prop department for the BBC. Yeah, of course. I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, in the same way that the set from Grange Hill is actually used in the young ones. But that's a bit more obvious because that's a young ones yeah. skit. I was a bit part in Miranda as a customer and uh, backstage there you could see there's the stairs of her joke shop and but behind the scenes of the stairs you could see the words ab fab written on it so uh the same stairs that uh oh, wow. jennifer that uh, uh, jennifer saunders goes down are the same stairs miranda falls down in many an episode but there you are. oh that's interesting that's fantastic actually i i'm kind of convinced that there's a bit of a set from an episode of steptoe and son in the young ones but okay. I can't remember what episode it's from, so yeah. I can't go and check. I think Steptoe and Son is very influential. It was remade in America as Sanford and Son mm. and did oh, hundreds of episodes. They over. did loads more, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, and it when one of the characters left, it became Sanford Arms, and then right. that became Sanford. So, you know, it went for a long time, and 16 of the original Steptoe scripts were actually reshot almost word for word. So that was like the office of its day, in yes. a way. Beyond the Fringe movement, that whole satire boom. That was the week that was in 63 to 65. Frost, whilst making the Frost Report, the follow-up to TW3, was concording across the Atlantic. Incredible. To make the Frost Report and then the American version of that was the week that was. Concording. In a way that I believe uh, Bruno Tonioli was doing between Strictly Come Dancing and Dancing with the Stars until COVID came out. He was certainly doing two or three shows flights. a week over the Atlantic, definitely. I mean, he might as well have just set up a studio in Concord. It might have been yeah. a bit easier. And for, we we need to give David Frost, I think, a lot of credit as well for his his way of corralling the comedy writers, the Pythons and, you know, Barry Cryer and the goodies. Yeah, I'd get them all together. Yeah, and weirdly wasn't overly liked by that set particularly either. Apparently he would used to conduct meetings from his toilet <laughs> with the door open. So oh, no. I know Barry Cryer refers to him as the practising catalyst because he was always getting people, just getting things going and making things happen. For a while I used to put on Twitter pretty much every single week without fail a screen grab of the best rated comedy on BBC Two, Channel 4 and Channel 5. And it was always, always Dad's Army. And it used to get half a million more than any other comedy on those shows. The only exception to that, I think, was the Windsors. Um, I think the Windsors managed to, to beat it. But other than that, nothing did as well. Yeah. as dad's army which is an old-fashioned sitcom which i know has a load of nostalgia built into it and it's sort of it's an in a way it's a false comparison but it it doesn't tell you you know it tells you something doesn't it my great aunt and great uncle went to see faulty towers being recorded oh and they were wow. telling me and they knew at the time the name i've forgotten who was like the famous head of bbc comedy for quite some time who had three he had three names. How had... Oh, I know who you mean, yeah, yeah. Yes. I don't know his name. John Howard Davis. Him, that fella. Uh, so the they knew him. And uh, he said, oh, come along and see this new sitcom being recorded, bloke from, bloke from Monty Python. You know, compared with nowadays, when you go and watch a sitcom being recorded and everything's filmed three times, it takes four yeah. hours. Instead, one take in, uh, in at seven, 
7.40, done in the bar by eight. You know, it was, and that's, Amazing. it's why you see the wobbly sets, they're still yeah, in. It's why, good. um you know, you, some of, some, I think Faulty Towers, some of the episodes are 27 minutes, some are 32. Yeah. And I think even to this day, when they re- repeat it in the rare times, they do repeat it. They sometimes start it a minute early and finish a minute oh, late. Really? I was sitting in my grand's house in the middle 1880s playing with my toy cars. My sister and brother went out. They came back an hour later going, guess what we just saw? And they'd seen the young ones being filmed in Bristol. <laughs> they'd, the, the final scene where the car crashes and, the, and they'd seen it. They got their autographs and everything. And I was so annoyed I stayed in and played with my toy cars. Oh, toy cars, which was why toys are rubbish and television's great. <laughs> there you go. More from James Carey and Simon Dunn very shortly. But first, we have a tale left to tell of the co-optimists, that hugely popular comedy troupe of the 1920s. They made their BBC debut on April the 26th, 1923, as we've heard at that Harrods concert. But they made their broadcast debut nearly two years earlier, long before there was a BBC or even an idea of one. So this, I wonder, might make them the first comedy group on the air, maybe in the world even. Did America bring a comedy troupe to the airwaves before August 1921. I must look that up. If not, Coptimists, have that award yourself. And also, this makes it, I believe, London's first public broadcast. So, what was happening that made them pretty much the only thing broadcast in Britain in 1921? If you go back to early episodes of this podcast, you'll be able to hear how, in late 1920, the government essentially banned experimental broadcasting. They feared it might interfere with legitimate services. Military, maritime, police as well were starting to use radio, that sort of thing. So the British government were cautious, and they put a stop to the concerts from Chelmsford. So how did the co-optimists break that ban in August of 1921. Well, it all comes down to a soldier who lost his sight in the Battle of the Somme, Captain Ian Fraser. He established this idea later adopted by Arthur Burroughs on the pre-BBC 2LO of experimental broadcasting for charities. You see, the artists perform for free for the cause, the government allow it, it's for charity, and the listeners in get a broadcast. So Captain Fraser had set up St Dunstan's. This is a hostel for soldiers who'd lost their sight in the First World War. Back in his pre-war days, Captain Fraser had been toying with wireless at school. He was one of those radio hams, early adopters. His call sign was 5SU. And of course, for those with sight loss, this new radio thing could be hugely beneficial. So August 1921, Captain Fraser found a brilliant way to kill two birds with one stone. He could raise funds for St Dunstan's Hostel and promote broadcasting in one fell swoop. The first London broadcast concert. So with rare permission from a government who were anti-broadcasting, he went ahead with his plans. And just like that 1923 concert we mentioned earlier, which broadcast from Marconi House to Harrods, this 1921 event also had two buildings at the heart of this plan. Artists would broadcast from a little-known Marconi building, not Marconi House on the Strand, but a mile away in a tiny side alley of Dean Street in Soho called St Anne's Court was the Marconi Scientific Instrument Company. Now today, it's the Good Housekeeping Institute. I visited there recently, filmed a five-minute video for our Patreon subscribers. Join us for a fiver a month there. You will get that and every previous video I've done as well. And you too can see the spot where, I guess, London's first public broadcast took place. There's no blue plaque there yet. 
Maybe we'll see if we can change that. So this wasn't an outside broadcast as such because this Marconi building already had a 70-foot mast on the roof, a 10-watt transmitter inside. I don't think good housekeeping have that now. And it was here that the co-optimist comedy troupe, who were brand new at the time, they were on at the Royalty Theatre on Dean Street less than a minute away, and they took to this horn-type microphone, gathered around it, and they delivered their show. A mile down the road, there was then this other venue, and this is where the money was earned. It was called the Eagle Hut. Concert by Wireless. The public will be able to listen today for the first time to a wireless telephony concert at the Beaver Hut Strand. From the Daily Herald, 22nd of July, 1921. Ah, so that article says the Beaver Hut, next door to the Eagle Hut. One was the American Servicemen's YMCA, one was the Canadians. Thank you, Andrew Barker, newspaper detective, for spotting my error and therefore allowing this addendum to this podcast. The newspapers say it was the Beaver Hut. Brian Hennessy's book on early broadcasting says the Eagle Hut. Maybe we'll split the difference and say it was at the Beagle Hut. But no, it was the Beaver Hut. It's on the north side of the Oldwich Strand area, that curved bit of road near Marconi House. And this is where people could go and listen in to this broadcast concert. Here's an oddity about the past and future of the Eagle Hut, though. Beaver Hut, not Eagle Hut. Wasn't really a hut either, quite a massive building. In its past, it was the site of the Tivoli Music Hall. And some of the comic performers in this broadcast had performed on that very stage when it was a musical. Now they would send their voices to this very spot instead. How bizarre. The future of this temporary eagle hut, Beaver Hut, next door. Well, it was on land, owned and leased to them by Irving T. Bush. Yes, this would become Bush House home of the BBC World Service for 70 years. On completion, Bush House was said to be the most expensive building in the world. But before that, before Bush House was built, even before the BBC had a name, this temporary hut on that same ground was a key part of London's first pre-BBC broadcast. People weren't broadcasting from there, but they were receiving there. Captain Fraser had installed a valve receiver, a radio set, connected to 28 pairs of headphones. Imagine that, like going to HMV back in the day when you could go and listen into vinyl and the like. This is summer 1921, a time when most people had never heard radio or barely heard of radio. What a magical opportunity for the 4,000 people who passed through the doors that day. And for a shilling each, they got to listen to just three minutes to that concert a mile away. It'll be given daily, free of charge, at 11.50, 2.15 and 6.15 as an attraction at a sale and exhibition in aid of St Dunstan's work for blinded soldiers. Andrew Barker tells me that St Dunstan's did similar the November before, 1920, in Cardiff, with a wireless demonstration once again, all in the name of charity and promoting the cause of broadcasting. Looking at these newspaper articles that Andrew Barker has shared with me, it looks too like this wasn't necessarily just a one-day thing. Uh, one article says that it ran from July the 21st to the 30th. Another says that Doris O'Brien sang on the 5th of August, so maybe the run was extended, with potentially broadcasts every day. Maybe that is how 4,000 people managed to attend. The microphone was suspended by cords and the mouthpiece attached to a waxed cardboard funnel. The reception of speech and music was reported by many amateurs within a radius of 50 miles, and the concerts were successfully received by a Bristol amateur, Mr Gerald Marcuse, whose station is 110 miles distant. It's believed that this latter feat constitutes a record for a 10-watt telephone transmission in daylight. So reported the wireless world. The 1921 co were similar to 1923. It included Melville Gideon on piano, the exuberant Phyllis Monkman, her producer-performer husband Laddie Cliff, singers like Stanley Holloway, Gilbert Charles, Betty Chester, Amy Hume. 
There were other performers too who came to the Marconi Scientific Instrument Company. Your shilling might buy you three minutes of singer Charles Coburn or Doris O'Brien, Rainer Hunt or James Gell, the blind tenor. An appropriate booking, of course, given this was a fundraiser for sightless servicemen. A successful event too, by the sounds of it. Funds were raised, awareness was raised, London broadcasting was commenced. But the broadcasting ban continues. The next day, the ether fell silent once again, apart from the odd radio ham. Nearly a year later, London 2LO would finally bring radio back to the capital's airwaves. A year after that, then, broadcasting had changed somewhat. There was now a BBC. The co-optimists returned to the microphone there in Marconi House for that Harrods-hosted concert on the day of the royal wedding, with Phyllis Monkman surely waving her fist in the air at Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, going, that could have been me. I wonder what Stanley Holloway, Uncle Davy and co made of BBC's Marconi House studio in 1923. It's piano stuck in the door, a sad George Roby down the corridor, two years after their broadcast from that different Marconi building on St Anne's Court. Here now, they were one of the last acts to broadcast from Marconi House. In both cases, two years apart, they broadcast, bizarrely, to the same number of people in a room across London. 4,000 people sitting in awe. And yes, I've read that number in a couple of places. So pure coincidence that that quantity of people sat listening to them in awe. While, of course, hundreds of others listened in at home. A real rarity and a quirky part of early broadcasting that's often underreported. I think it's marvellous that comedy came first, one of the only broadcasts of that silent year of 1921, and the first London public broadcast. Perhaps, if we find another, we'll bring it to you. But flashing forward several decades, comedy continues with James Carey and first Simon Dunn. Let's see how the BBC was faring further down the track. Blackadder. Blackadder goes full. Apparently it shares a lot of similarities with a play that had been on the year before. It was written uh, well before that, in the 70s. It was by R.C. Sheriff called Journey's End. But the year before Blackadder was on, they'd done a TV version of it with Jeremy Northam and Timothy Spall. Ah, so it's kind of zeitgeisty. um, Well, in the same way that Hello, Hello Mm. forgotten to have been a a parody of the the long-running hit BBC drama series Secret Army. Yeah, of course. Uh, visually looks very similar, as does I, I think Blackadder's moustache, I think, has the same moustache as mm. Jeremy Northam's character. Again, TV eating itself. There's so much crossover in this kind of alternative mainstream throughout the 80s. It's ridiculous. So Rick Mail in the very first series of Carrots Lib. Oh, okay. So Jasper Carrot, it's, it's, Rick turns up on Cannon and Ball. The mm. Dangerous Brothers turn up on an episode of Noel Edmonds. Oh, really? Weirdly. Yeah, it, it's really strange. Mm. Like the, the amount of times they're all on Wogan as well mm. is, is mm. fascinating. But so Rick and Lisa Mayer, who co-wrote The Young Ones with Ben Elton and him, um, in 1982, they did a, a series of sketches for, for Jasper Carrot called Dave the Cardboard Box. <laughs> and it's literally about the adventures of the cardboard box. Right. And it's really funny. You can find them on YouTube. It's just Rick narrating the adventures of a cardboard box, which okay. is always very yeah, funny. Nice. And you've got a book, haven't you, coming out? Or it's out now and it's about bottom. Uh, tell us about bottom. It's called Proctology because I'm a child. And Excellent. I, I love that. that. Was a very fun, very fun title. I've always loved bottom. And it, it stuck with me in a way that it shouldn't have done if it is what you think it is, which is just a silly yeah. lavatorial daft sitcom, which it is. 
of well, in all fairness. It is, but you've already, I've only, I've seen a little bit of your book. Uh, I've seen a little bit of your bottom and uh, <laughs> it never goes away, the funny. It doesn't go away. They were going to call the show My Bottom or Your Bottom. Okay. They, they vacillate between what they were going to call it. So that the continuity yeah. announcer would, and now it's time for look at My Bottom. What <laughs> Another episode of my marvelous. Well, having having had a, a brief glance uh, at a, a, just the the top of the crack is all I've seen so far. Um, <laughs> the the builder's bum. The builder's bum um, before it's been hoiked up again. Um, but it's already made me reappraise it in my because I again I thought of it as fairly you know fun at the time, maybe of its era, fairly in the nicest way disposable that you see it and that's fine. But actually thinking back, it has stayed with me more than I thought it had and. And then I saw that clip um, on the BBC archive thing of Gloria Hunniford interviewing Rick Mayall, and she slightly dismisses it a bit as well. But he really kind of claims it and says, no, we're doing something here. We are not going backwards. We're moving forwards into this. You know, it may feel like we're plumbing more more depths in a way, but they're doing it much more intentively. They wanted to make it timeless, which is why the, the, the visual design of it is timeless. It doesn't look like a 90s sitcom in the same way that, Men behaving badly does, or the same way that keeping up appearances does. It's all very deliberately set in a past that never really existed. And it's it provides a really nice bookend with the young ones, because the young ones was kind of at the start of Thatcher's government. And you know, it's it's famously angry at Thatcher, but it's impotently angry. But and then bottom is more about middle age and the kind of them coming to terms with for all of that youthful anger they had, they did nothing. Mm. It, it it really was that impotent and it gives that that rage has given way to a kind of nihilism and it sort of preempts other things as well i mean obviously before it even had a name toxic masculinity is being skewered and you know there's a lot of fart gags as well of yeah. course and i think that's why it still sticks with you because it's it's timeless it kind of feels in a way like the end of sitcom the end of that sort of sitcom because what you've got that you've got flat share but they've taken that to the to the extreme. They've got two so two guys stuck in a flat really for, forever. It feels hellish almost. It feels like it's sort of um, you know it an eternity hellish. of this. It looks hellish. Yeah. Authority figures above you. The basic premise of my thinking in the book is that Richie and Eddie are at the bottom of the pile. They're the victims of society, and it's a sitcom in the sense of Steptoe and Son of Hancock. It's two. Mm idiots stuck in a room with each other with literally nowhere else to go and no one else to be with and, and now that sitcom is so much more it's the the, net, the netflixification of these things where it's yeah. more characters it's glossy it's serials it's uh tune in next week to see you know things like the good place which every episode the last minute is you must click that next button yeah. uh to see how the story goes Whereas this was always self-contained, and that even like the title sequence and thing with the bench and the sadness and the the oh, music that, that and title all of those things is an amazing, beautiful scene setting device. Even at end of episodes, some of the violence inflicted on them at the end, they would be dead in any other sitcom. Yeah. Well, your book is it is it out yet, or is it? It is out. Order. It is out. Proctology. So proctology. A bottom examination. Go and buy proctology. Sitcoms really show us like a mirror. You just think, yeah, I do. I just, that's me. I just, or it's very rarely that's me. It's usually I know someone just like yeah, that. That's you. My wife used to work for a guy who was exactly like David Brent in The Office. He thought The Office was hilarious because he said that he used to work for someone like that, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, okay. Yeah. 
uh, you know, I'll just put down the mirror then and just we'll just pretend this never happened. Is there hope to get a an audience based mainstream sitcom back again? Because it seems to be it's been out of favour for a little while, perhaps. The thing is, like Miranda was looking at the camera, Mrs. Brown's boys shows the audience. Upstart Crow sort of acknowledges the Shakespearean theatricality to it. Does it? it do we need a a, a hook to get, make an audience sitcom? The next audience sitcom happen? Do you think, or is there hope that we can get back to the domestic, you know, at home with the Smiths kind of? Kind yeah, of I don't know. I think to sneak one past the Watchful Dragons, you probably do need a gimmick because. The, the decision makers tend to be just like, oh, people don't want some straightforward, goofy family sitcom like my family. Nobody, nobody wants that apart from the nine million people who watched that. So it feels like in order to get one on, you do need to have a truly brilliant idea that's of the moment, but also has a smartness to it. That means that it's not just some plain old sofa sitcom where, you know, well, obviously we can't just film them talking, you know, that's not a show, even though that's, that's sort of most theater. It's not good enough just to have an idea that's good enough. I think it does have to have a gimmick to it. And it's pretty depressing for for our sitcom geeks podcast for our episode 150. I think it was, we had Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton, two giants of sitcom writing drop the dead donkey and uh outnumbered you could retire after those two i mean that's just like well what else do you want and they got a show on itv a very traditional show on itv called kate and koji and i don't quite know what that's doing on itv it's a bit of an outlier but they said to us in the course of the interview that people had sort of forgotten about drop the dead donkey and, I, you know, they were the guys that wrote Outnumbered, but they were led to believe, yeah, but you kind of got lucky with the kids there, didn't you? I mean... It wrote, it wrote itself, didn't it? Yeah. The kids just say what's in their heads, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you were just you were just standing around with bowls ready to catch what they were saying, put it down, and then you, you got the writer's, writer's feet. You know, which is, of course, grotesque and not true. And so they had five, six, seven, eight scripts that they wrote, not back... And Kate and Koji was sort of number nine or ten. I mean, mate, what hope is there? You've I mean, got to keep plugging away, clearly, haven't you? Why doesn't BBC One, as it were, just say to Guy Jenkins and Andy Hamilton, "We'd like you to write a sitcom that it's it's happening"? What can you give us your top two ideas, and we'll we'll pick the one that really works for us. Great, let's do that one, um, and off off you go, and just trust their judgment because they've been only doing sitcoms really for the last thirty years. Mm. So let them let them do it. The other thing is, I know that the audience don't need that gimmick. If the show is right, they'll watch it and they'll like it because they're still watching Big Bang Theory. They're still watching Frasier. They're still watching Dad's Army. They're still watching all of those shows that don't break the fourth wall that are just traditional sitcoms. They do really good business. Well, thank you, James. Thank you, Simon. Do buy their books. Links in the show notes. Before we go, I must shout about our other resident comedy historian. Uh, we hear from him now and then on the podcast, Alan Stafford. He will be back on the podcast soon talking about John Henry. Well, see also in the show notes for details of Alan's recent article on the earliest topical comedy on the BBC. Alan's unearthed it. It's a satirical response to attempts by the BBC to broadcast an elephant in the summer of 1923. And days after that, in August that year, John Henry's wireless elephant spoofed that bizarre event on the air. Alan's found a later recording of what that would have sounded like, John Henry's wireless elephant. Now I just want to 
state that the next time there's any experimenting to be done with elephants, I shall not be present. Now my flat's on the top floor, and I had a bit of bother getting Percy up there, and anyhow they couldn't blame me for the walls because they always were weak. There you go. That is the birth of topical comedy. That's a comedian responding to a news story and a broadcast, in fact, from a week or so before. Alan has a book out soon on John Henry. We will do a podcast episode on The Great Man when Alan, of course, will join us as a guest. So that's comedy. All of it. Well, most of it. All right. We left out Goodnight Sweetheart and Mrs. Brown's Boys. But everything else was pretty much there. Or at least we now know more than we did at the start about some of the very earliest mirth on the BBC and before the BBC. Thank you to Simon Dunn and James Carey and Geoffrey Holland. I've got to credit a long-past author, Brian Hennessy. His book, The Emergence of Broadcasting in Britain, is a goldmine of stories like the 1921 broadcast you heard of this episode. Huge thanks to the English Music Heritage Series of the University of Minnesota for access to Sidney Nicholson's wedding anthem. Link in the show notes to listen to that in full. And thank you to John Hardman and James Sherwood for their wedding anthem detective work. Oh, the effort our crack team goes to. Do email me, paul at paulcarenza.com with any notes, comments, feedback, adulation. Actually, no, put your adulation in review form and please review this podcast where you found it because unlike so many podcasts nowadays, this one's entirely run by one person, no company behind it. So you're helping boosting this, telling others, spreading word online or offline or over the garden fence or picking up the telephone, tell a friend, whatever. It's all much appreciated. Uh, what else? Well, I'm on tour with an evening of very old radio this September, October. You can find me in Turnham Green, West London, Watch It in Somerset, Tunbridge Wells, Chelmsford, Kettering and Peckham. paulcarenza.com slash tour for details. That and plenty more is in the show notes. Next episode, we career towards the end of Marconi House, the start of Savoy Hill, and we got the centenary of the Radio Times coming up soon as well. So we'll be jumping ahead a little for that. But first up, the BBC hires a music boss. Percy Pitt. We've got some cracking interviews about BBC music over the years. Next episode will be guest heavy, looking more at later years from the 1960s onwards. Our headline guest, Johnny Beerling, ex-Radio 1 boss, producer of the first Radio 1 show with Tony Blackburn. Johnny has a lot to tell us about his time at the top. Do subscribe to this podcast if you don't already, and don't miss that chat next time. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced solely by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. We are nothing to do with the BBC, you know. Thanks for this episode, especially to those who've posted co-optimist recordings on YouTube. Links in the show notes to those marvellous clips if you'd like to hear more from them. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for music from 1923 and from 1967 here on the British Broadcasting Century.